Let's begin, if we would, in the book of Matthew. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, as we will hopefully, prayerfully, uh, after three Sundays, actually finish one whole chapter in the Bible. So some of you are thinking, if it took three weeks to get through one chapter, how long is it going to take us to get through Matthew? Uh, Good news that these things are a lot like uh, taking a plane off the ground. It takes a little while. you got to get you know, up off the runway, but once we do, we'll hit some cruising altitude here in the next few weeks. But what we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And if you didn't bring uh, your Bible or if you want to grab one of ours, they're located in the seat pockets in front of you, so feel free uh, to grab one. Um, last week, we covered the genealogy of Jesus. And so we looked at his family tree, his family lineage. Now, why is this important? What, what reason do we need to know all these begat, begat, begat? Well, one of the reasons that we covered last week is because it fulfilled prophecy. It was prophesied of the Christ, of the Messiah, that he would come from the line of Abraham, and he would also come from the line of David. So if this is the prophecy, and he is to be the Messiah, then it must be fulfilled, and not in part, but completely. And so this brings us to the key word in the book of Matthew. As we go through the book, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and he's trying to lay out the story that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the line of the tribe of Judah. And so if he's going to lay that out, the Messiah must fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke of him. So he doesn't just fulfill a part of these prophecies, he fulfills them in their entirety. And what I mean by that is, uh, for you Bible scholars, if you flip to Luke chapter 3, what you would see is there is also a genealogy of Jesus, only the names are a little bit different. And so immediately the flags go up. Why are there two genealogies for the same man, and yet uh, they have different names after King David? And the reason for this is because Luke chapter 3 actually gives us the genealogy of Mary, his mother. And so if Jesus is to fulfill all of the prophecies in the Old Testament and he is to be the son of David, then he must not only uh, have, from a legal standpoint, his father Joseph be in the line of David because legally this would be uh, his rights to the throne, but Joseph, we're going to find out today, was not his biological father, which means he must also biologically, his mother Mary, come from the line of David. And so we see on both sides uh, fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus was the son of David. So now this week, moving into uh, chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to see the birth of Jesus. So begin with me, if you would, in verse 18. We'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back through, and we'll, we'll pick some things out as we go through this verse by verse. Beginning in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him 
and took his wife, but did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And so there's the end of the first chapter. Now let's begin in verse 18. What we see is a word that we, we don't commonly use in our language. He begins with, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So what does this word betrothed mean? Well, we would typically liken it to an engagement, right? A, a, a man and a woman get engaged with the idea that they will eventually get married. Uh, but the reality of it is betrothal is a little different. It is actually a legally binding contract. Most of these marriages were arranged marriages, which means uh, at a very early age, it would have been decided by Joseph's family and Mary's family that these two would become husband and wife. Now, they enter into this contractual obligation, which usually involved uh, you know, the, the giving of property by the man to the woman to pay for her. It was exchanged at the beginning. So thankfully, ladies, you'd be happy to know you'd usually be worth something like a couple goats, a few chickens, uh, you know, something like that. We, we value you very much. So this uh, process had already begun. They had been legally bound in a contract. Now, uh, these betrothals typically take place over a year. So it would be a one-year period where along this time, Mary and Joseph would have the opportunity to get to know one another. They, they would get to learn about each other, their likes, their dislikes, as they essentially were dating through this period, but with the idea that when this time is up, they were going to get married. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. Now, I say all that to say that Jewish weddings and these festivals are far different than what we experience today. So what I mean by that is, is that in these Jewish festivals, keep in mind we have a Judeo-Christian faith, which means these festivals and different activities actually have deeper implications. So if you think about a Jewish wedding feast. Here's how it would go. The, the man and the woman are betrothed. There's this period of time where they're to get to know one another. But during this contractual time period, the, the woman does not know exactly when her wedding date is. That for the man, he's to go back to his father's house, his father's property, and he's actually to, to build an area for them to live in after they get married. Now, they wouldn't truly go forward with the ceremony until the house was complete until the area that they were going to live in, the room, was completed, which meant there was some suspense leading up to when the actual wedding could, would take place. Now, for the woman, uh, you would be getting excited as you hear rumors about how Joseph's coming along with the room addition. Boy, did you hear this? His friends would say things. Her friends would hear things, and they would, they would come back and share them with Mary. I think the time's getting close. So, ladies, you can imagine the buildup to this event when all at once... Uh, her friends, your friends, you all go together and you, you go and gather up the bride and take her away, whisk her off to the wedding festival. So unfortunately, you don't know the exact day you're going to get married, but as the process goes, you begin to get more excited for this event to take place. So all that to share uh, with you that the Jewish wedding feast would take about seven days. This was some kind of a soiree, right? This was not our usual, you know, you go out, you have a little party, and everybody goes on happily ever after. This was a week-long period where they would celebrate the couple, and at the end of the wedding feast, the husband and wife would actually uh, come together and be presented as the groom and the bride, and everyone would celebrate. It was this beautiful thing. Now, when I say it has prophetic implications, I'm going to turn with you to John chapter 14, verse 2. This is what 
Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see, throughout Scripture, we are called the bride of Christ as the church. He is our groom, right? We're spending this time together on this earth. We're getting to know one another. But someday, someday soon, we know because we see the activities that are taking place, right? He's building. He's building a, a mansion. Some translations say a dwelling, a room, a house for us. And when he is complete, and when, a time that we don't know exactly, he's going to come and he's going to whisk us away. This is that time called the rapture. He's going to actually take his church to be with him during and missing out on the tribulation period, which, by the way, you know how long the tribulation is? Seven years, right? Sounds a bit more like a Jewish wedding feast. And at the end of the tribulation, what we find is that the church gets to return with her groom and presented as the bride of Christ. What Jude says is, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. He's going to come back with with all of his saints. So a beautiful uh, picture we see prophetically laying out the Jewish wedding feast and uh, the, the end times for us, for us as the church. All right. Now, all this being said, Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 give us a far more detailed account of this entire birth of Jesus. Why is that? Well, I think it's for very simple reasons. I think Matthew is writing very much from the standpoint of Joseph. And guys, uh, as we all know, we are not long on details, right? Luke chapter 1 and 2, he covers a lot about Mary and her background. He spends an entire section recanting her genealogy as well. We get way more details in Luke as he's giving it much more from the perspective of Mary. And ladies, you love some details, right? So for men, all we know is like a baby's born, right? So I'll hear that a baby was born, and I'll tell my wife, hey, did you hear that so-and-so had a baby? She's like, oh, that's great. What's its name? I don't know. What's its gender? Ah, it's a boy or a girl. I'm not sure. Wait, anything? Do you have any information? And it's always, oh, I mean, we really don't pay attention to the details. So if you're a detail person, good news, go to Luke 1 and 2, and you can get all the details with all this that we just covered. If you want details, though, this is just, uh, this is not biblical, but I'm telling you, don't ask a man. So there you have it. Now then, as we continue through our study, let's look at some characteristics of Joseph. So we've got Joseph here as the stepfather of Jesus. Let's, let's look into his character. What we're going to see are three different things that, that stand out. Uh, first of all, in verse 19, we read, And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public spectacle or example, was minded to put her away secretly. And so the first thing we see from the character of Joseph is he was a just man. Now, the word just could also be translated upright or righteous. So in the BAV, which is the Brock Ashley version, he was a solid dude, right? That's how I would put it. This guy was solid, right? He was a solid guy. Uh, he was thinking about these things. He, he was a just man. He loved Mary. He did not want to make her a public spectacle. And what's meant by that is because she has essentially, based on the law, broken this legal covenant by being pregnant, and Joseph knows that ain't mine. So through the law of Moses, what could actually happen is he could have her taken out and stoned to death. This was the, this was the uh, option that he had laid out there 
before him. And yet what we find is, is along with him being a just man, a righteous man, he was also a faithful man. He was a good guy that had faith. How do we know that? Because he couldn't be righteous if he didn't have faith. What we see in the life of Abraham, I put it up here on the screen in words that are almost too small for you to be able to read. Uh, what we see in the life of Abraham is that he believed. He had faith in the Lord, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so if Joseph is to have any righteousness whatsoever, it's because of his faith, his belief, not in himself, but in God. And now note with me that as we look at this piece of his character, he, him being a just man, that he was thinking about these things and thinking about how he could do the right thing even before an angel visited him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in Joseph's spot, I am mad, I'm angry, I'm ticked off, I feel betrayed, I'm downright mad at this deal. And I'm thinking about how to get revenge for me. But this is not at all in his character, and he's doing it before a visitation by an angel, which I think is important because after I get visited by an angel, I'm doing whatever that angel said. An angel shows up to me, and I'm like, man, whatever you say. If it's get down on the ground and bark, I'm barking, you know? So this is the spot that Joseph's in. He's a just man. Now, secondly, in verse 20, what we see is, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so the second point in the character of Joseph is he was a, a thoughtful man, right? He wasn't looking to make a rash decision. He wasn't trying to be impetuous and just immediately go this way, go that way. He was actually the complete opposite of me. <laughs> That's what I know. Like how many times I make a gut decision based on very little facts, based on very little information, and throughout my, at least my working career, it has paid dividends at times. The world actually applauds that. They like this fast acting, quick, go, go, go. Sometimes it's costly, but lots of times it's not. And yet when it comes to people's lives and the things of the Lord, we're called to be thoughtful. And so what we find is in the life of Joseph that, that prayer and patience and thoughtfulness, what's it lead to? It actually leads to clarity by God. As he's being thoughtful, as he's thinking about this, God provides clarity to the situation. The angel of the Lord comes down to provide that for him right here. Now, lots of times we've heard we want to be in step with God, right? I think we'd all agree we don't want to outpace the will of God in our lives. We don't want to outpace it. We want to be in step. But let me also recommend to you that if you can't be exactly in step with the will of God, it's always better to be a half step behind. Just a little bit. I just hang back just a little bit and wait on the Lord, which goes completely against what we think about as an American culture, right? And yet also what we see is God here bringing clarity to the situation. He is not the author of confusion. I put 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 up here for us to consider that, that, that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And so if it feels confusing and, and disruptive in your life, then he is encouraging you to seek clarity, to seek him. Because if it is all these things, it's not coming from God. He's not the author of confusion. So that's what we see secondly in the, in the character of Joseph. And now we're going to skip ahead just a little bit as we finish off 
Joseph as a person to verses 24 and 25 because we've seen that he is a just man. He is a thoughtful man. But then in verse 24, and then Joseph being aroused from his sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So the last point in Joseph's character is he was an obedient man. Now, what we note first is he did not delay once the angel of the Lord gave him direction to take Mary as his wife. I I spent several minutes laying out for you how the Jewish uh, betrothals actually worked, that this was a a time-consuming process, and they were supposed to follow these rules, and yet what did God say? Marry her. And so what Joseph did right then and right there is he broke tradition, and he married her. He took Mary as his wife. Why is this important? Well, she was just newly pregnant right? The community didn't know that she was with child. She wasn't six months pregnant like we sometimes get in our heads. And so God is protecting Mary, encouraging Joseph, take her as your wife and do it now. He did not delay. And so I think about how many times I've asked God, pleaded with God to give me direction. He gives it to me. And then what's my natural response? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I was looking for direction and clarity here. I, I didn't know you were going to make me uncomfortable, right? We, we didn't, I didn't bank on that. And so our, our response is typically when he finally gives us direction, it's to pump the brakes and to delay. And, and yet in the life of Joseph, we see he was obedient. He did not delay. And then secondly, to, to bolster this idea of his obedience it is look in verse 25, he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Joseph did not know her speaking of intimacy. They did not have uh, those relations. And so what we notice is that Joseph was even obedient to his own desires. He waited until after she had Jesus in order to be obedient. Now, ladies, I know that you love weddings, right? I know you love weddings. You love the pomp, the circumstance, the flowers, the decorations, the dresses, right? You love all that stuff, the pictures. Oh my goodness, the pictures. Let me just fill you in on a little secret. You probably already know this, but just you need to admit it. Here's what the men love. The wedding night. They're not looking for the pomp and the circumstance. If they tell you they love the pictures, they're a liar, Men, read Revelation 21.8. Find out what happens to liars. It's not good. Stop lying. Men love the wedding night. Now, they may claim they like the other stuff, but I guarantee you it's number two, number three, number 3,000 on the list to what old number one is, the wedding night. And yet what I love about Joseph is, in spite of his own desires, in a place that for us as men, it's a struggle, he denied his flesh. Now, it does not mean he denied his flesh forever. He did, in fact, come together with his wife. We know that for a fact, as some uh, you know, places would espouse, that she was a perpetual virgin. She certainly was not. Uh, Mary had children. Those children came from somewhere, and they weren't all from the Holy Spirit. Uh, she, we know this also uh, because we can read the books of James, Jude, brothers of Jesus. We know he had sisters. Uh, later when we go through Matthew, they all think he's crazy. They tell, hey, Jesus, your brothers and sisters are out here. They think you're a whack job. So he had a, a family, uh, but, but in this period of life, when it was probably the most challenging, Joseph was obedient. Now, I think about all three of those things, and on my best day, I might get one out of three. Being just, being obedient, being thoughtful. On my best day, 
I'm never hit three for three on this deal. I, I would like to, but it just doesn't happen. And so uh, as we reflect on that, though, keep in mind, even for Joseph, it was not enough. Even going three for three on this list was not enough for him to be saved. But in fact, what he needed was Jesus. So let's go to verse 21 as we get the focus turned now to Jesus. And what we see here is, and she will, being Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. So another way that Joseph was obedient, by the way, is in the naming of Jesus. When we went through that whole genealogy last week, what's a name you notice did not show up anywhere, no, not, never, in the genealogy of Jesus? Uh, Jesus. It didn't show up anywhere. Now this comes in a day and age where, especially for a firstborn son, you're going to name him after some other family member. So Joseph was obedient by not just naming him Joe Jr. Right? That would make the most sense. Also, I want to note that names in the Hebrew language have meanings. They're important. Now, for us, it's a little bit different. You know, sometimes names have meanings when we name our children. Uh, for my generation, often we're just hoping for something that sounds cool and it's kind of unique. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that was just my generation, but the reality is I was disappointed as a young man to find out that my name, Brock, my mother named me after a late 1970s soap opera star, Brock Reynolds from The Young and the Restless. So not exactly what I was hoping for when I'm like, hey, Mom, where'd you get my name? I wasn't looking for the soap operas. So uh, anyway, but then also I was finally able to look up when I was around 10, what does the name Brock mean? And I found out it means badger. Like, wow, that's not great. I'm a badger? And then I looked up what badgers do. Badgers are stinking awesome. They're mean. They're feisty little creatures. And so feisty, you know. I mean, it's not a tiger or a you know lion like I'd hope, but but names oftentimes have meanings, and, and this is the same way with Jesus. So Jesus is his name in Greek. That's what the entire New Testament was written in. It was written in Greek. Our Old Testament, all written in Hebrew, except for a few select chapters. But what it uh, means in uh, or the name in Hebrew is actually Yeshua. Yeshua means Jehovah is salvation. So this is the, the name of Jesus. Our English translation for that would be Joshua. So the name Joshua comes from this same Hebrew root word, which is Yeshua. Now, his name, Jehovah is salvation, also was his mission statement. It defined his purpose. His purpose here on earth was to save people from their sins. Jehovah is salvation. Now, here's another newsflash for any of you that didn't realize this. And by the way, don't feel bad if you didn't know it, because I was like 35 before I realized his last name is not Christ. I thought it was first name Jesus, last name Christ. There's his full name. But the reality is Christ is in fact uh, his title. So Christ in the Greek is Christo, or in Hebrew is Mashiach, which just sounds awesome when I say it, Mashiach. But it means anointed one. So in that day, they would anoint three different uh, uh, groupings or, or uh, if you want to call them roles in their culture. They would anoint kings, they would anoint priests, and they would anoint prophets. They would anoint them with oil. The picture there is of the Holy Spirit. And they wouldn't put just a little drop of oil. Like if you asked me to be anointed for some healing, I've got some oil I'm going to dab on you out of my office. 
uh, they would take a horn of oil and they would dump this thing. It's like a five-gallon bucket of oil so that everybody knows you're anointed. Which, by the way, if I'm anointed by the Holy Spirit, I hope God doesn't use the dauber. I hope he dumps a bucket out on this guy. So this is what his name means, though. It is his title, rather. His uh, title is the anointed one. So for the people, they were excited, not because they were looking for a priest or a prophet. They wanted a king, right? They wanted the king of kings to come down and whoop some Roman hiney. That's what they were looking for, right? The Romans were, were making a mess of things in their mind. They were, they were messing with their culture and all these different things. They desired to have a king to come in and set their life right, to, to undo all the wrongs that people had done to them. I don't know about you, but I get really excited about having a king. I do. I get excited about God whooping everybody around me and putting them in order because that's what I need. I need some order with people. But the reality is they were not nearly as excited about having a priest. They weren't nearly as excited about being convicted of their own sin. And so because of this, they completely ignore huge sections of Scripture that spoke about Jesus. Uh, key pieces like Isaiah 53 that he wrote a thousand, 700 years excuse me, before the birth of Christ that described the beatings, the suffering that he would take on our behalf. They weren't nearly as excited about Psalm 22, which in eerie detail describes the crucifixion a thousand years before anyone was ever even crucified, let alone Jesus. It hadn't even been invented yet. They, they weren't that excited about those scriptures. But the ones about him being a king, making their enemies their footstool, woo! that one I'm excited about. So it's all about Jesus is what we find. Now, continue with me then in, in verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now this is a quotation. This prophet is actually Isaiah. Isaiah 7, verse 14. This is exactly what he said would take place, that a, a virgin would give birth. Now, now why is this important that it was a virgin birth? Well, for a couple reasons. For one, uh, at this point in time, all the people in Israel were looking for the Messiah. Daniel chapter 9 actually prophesied of the time frame that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. And so lots of people knew the Old Testament scriptures. They understood that Messiah was going to come, which means there were a lot of little Yeshuas running around. Jewish mamas all over the place were naming their boys Jesus. Why? Because everybody wants to be the mama to the Messiah, to the king. They were excited about that. And so there were lots of Jesuses in the time of Jesus, but there was only one of a miraculous birth. There was only one that would come, not from a, a, the birth of a man and woman, but of the Holy Spirit and a woman. And the other key piece of this is that sin, our sin nature, is passed through the line of Adam. But see, if he is to do what his mission statement is, which is save people from their sins, then that means uh, he must be perfect. So if he's born with a sin nature, like we are all born with, we are all sons of Adam, then he cannot be the perfect Passover lamb that God prescribed in Exodus chapter 12, where he says, you must have a lamb without blemish if the angel is to pass over your house. It, it couldn't happen unless it was absolute perfection, because the reality of it is, is everyone in this room has a disease. We are not the coronavirus, don't worry. 
it, we are all S-I-N positive. Every one of us. It's coursing through our bloodstream. And the only thing that can save us is blood transfusion. We, we must have clean blood to cover us. Now, for probably most of you, the most famous verse in all the New Testament you can recite, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, they gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But how many of you know the next verse? For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He sent him here for this specific purpose. And understand this as well. He did not just send him like Jesus drew the short straw up in heaven. Jesus volunteered. He said, I'll go. I'll do it. I'll take it on. And so this is what this scripture is telling us. This is how wonderful this is. But, but if this is the condition that we have, if we are all SIN positive, then, then my first question would be, maybe some of you have the same as, what then is sin? What is sin, right? How do you define sin? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, your head nods, you asked, I could tell. Harmatia is the Greek word. And what it means is to miss the mark. It's actually an archery saying. And so to, to give you an example, uh, a sin, to miss the mark, what it would be like is, uh, I am an expert uh, archer. I have taken archery classes for all of a week, and so I've decided that I'm going to, to attract people to Woodlawn Chapel, show off my archery skills. Now, thankfully, we have a new, young, beautiful worship team, and they're going to help me with this. Michaela is going to hold an apple onto the top of Jacob's head. And I'm going to rear back with my newfound archery skills and show you all just how good I am. This is going to be fantastic. So I draw back my bow, aiming to the best of my ability to take the apple off the top of Jake's head, uh, only to miss and strike him right in the arm, completely squashing his guitar playing abilities. Now, this is detrimental for a couple reasons. One, Jake can't play the guitar. And two, Michaela doesn't like to play the guitar. She doesn't like to, so now she's stuck having to play guitar. Oh, yeah, and Jake's arm's got a big hole in it, too. I don't give me that wrong there. That is sin. I intended to hit the apple, but I instead missed the mark. Now, a transgression is different. Imagine the same setup. I won't belabor the whole thing all over again. But instead, this time, I draw back my bow, apple on his head, and this time I go, you know what? I am so sick and tired of getting shown up by those two. Every time I get up here to teach the Word of God and have to follow the beautiful Holy Spirit, I'm just sick of it. I'll squash their guitar playing ability, and then maybe I'll look better. And so I intentionally drill an arrow right into his right arm and stop him from playing guitar. You see, the reality is he still has a hole in his arm. There's no difference for him. The difference for me is my intention. I intended to do wrong, which is a transgression. Now, let me just stop and say the penalty for both of those is death. It's death. It doesn't matter that my intentions were good and I missed the mark. It doesn't matter that my intentions were bad. And by the way, if, you've, if you're in here, uh, I'll freely admit there's some days my intentions are not good. I just do not feel like doing good today. I, I'm in a bad mood. I just feel like, you know, Lord, I don't have it today. But good news, you're in a room full of people that can agree with you. Like, we, we sometimes feel like that. And yet the end result is the penalty is still death. We still miss the mark. Therefore, we cannot be righteous in and of ourselves. I don't have enough 
righteousness in me to cover that thing up. It has to be pure. And so, to help us out with this definition of sin, we have the Old Testament. Now, how many of you know how many uh, rules and regulations there are in the Old Testament? Things we're not supposed to do? Don't look at the screen, cheaters. The first uh, answer for most of you is 10, right? Because you all know your Bible inside and out. You know that Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. I know there are ten things I'm not supposed to do right there. Well, the reality is of your Old Testament, there's actually 613 commandments. That's right. So if anybody's wanting to go uh, through a list, you've got 613 different ways that you and I can monkey this thing up. Now, God boiled it all down to a top ten list, which, by the way, we can't even manage to keep that. So, so for all of us, we're in this awful spot, and here's the real issue. The bottom line is, I am not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It's in my very nature. And my sin just proves what I already am. Now, what Paul says about the Old Testament and all these rules and all these regulations is they are a schoolmaster that point to our need for a Savior. They're trying to prove, and they do an excellent job of that, by the way, to prove what we all know is that we need help in this deal. We cannot get there on our own. And what Paul also says is the wages of sin is death, right? So, so this is the spot that we're in. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. Now I'm left in this spot. Praise the Lord, though, we have Jesus. But here's the thing. If we just rely on Jesus' teachings, and we don't have belief, and we don't have faith, here's the bad news. In just a few weeks, we're going to get to Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says that all this law, if you don't keep it physically, it's one thing, but if you even so much as think about one of these things, you're a sinner. Oh, poop. <laughs> that's, that's my reaction. Like, there's several of these things I haven't done, but I've sure thought about them. I've thought about murdering all kinds of people with my bare hands. Right? I didn't act on it, but I thought it. And so, so here's the thing. What we get to is the bottom line is we need a lawyer. I need an attorney. Somebody to step in for me. So the last spot we, we'll turn is, is in Romans chapter 3. And in this spot... Here's where the Apostle Paul's at. He's laid out through the first three chapters of Romans this very issue, that we have an S-I-N problem, and there is only one fix, and that is Jesus. And he goes on to list out, here's all the things that he does through faith. I'll pick up in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, and He might be the justifier, He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, Paul is confusing, right? Even the Apostle Peter said, sometimes Paul's words are weighty and very hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. I agree. But here's three things that the Apostle Paul said that we'll leave with today. And these are three things to ask yourself, is he these things for me? I personalize them for a reason. 
First of all, he is my justification. Now, that's a big word. It's a legal word. But the best way to understand it, it's just as if I'd never sinned. So in the court of law, when we stand there to be judged, he steps in and he is what Paul wrote, both the just and the justifier. He covers over our sins, taking them away. So it is just as if I never sinned. And what Paul goes on to write in Romans chapter 8 is that if you believe on that, there is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So if you're here hanging on to old stuff and past things and things that weigh you down, good news, there is no more condemnation for you if you believe in Jesus Christ. He is your justification. Secondly, he is my redeemer, right? Now this word redemption actually calls back to an idea of slavery. So back in Old Testament times, if you racked up a great big Citibank bill, they didn't have a lot of Citibank back then, but bear with me. You racked up a big old credit card bill and you could not pay your debts. What you could do is sell yourself into slavery to a rich person. They would pay off your debt, but then you owed them. You had to work that thing back. Time after time you worked and worked and tried to work off that debt. Now for you and I, we have sold ourselves into sin, right? We were gods, we've been sold into sin, and now here we are trying to work off our debt, right? And we work and we work. And let me just give you a little, little highlight. If you think you're going to work hard enough to get there, you're way behind the Catholics. They're working way harder than you are. Sorry. That was a joke. Sorry. You cannot work hard enough. But what Paul writes in Colossians 2.14 is this, that he took the handwriting of requirements. He took all those debts and he nailed them to the cross and he buried them. He buried those things in the ground where no longer do we have to be held down by them. And in fact, the final words that Jesus says is this. It's a phrase, actually. It's tetelestai. And what tetelestai means is paid in full. So if you were in the Roman world and you had this list of debts, if you were able to finally get it paid off, they would take a stamp and they would stamp it tetelestai. Paid in full. This is what he's done for us. He has redeemed us through the cross. He's nailed those things that weighted us down, that stopped us from getting there. He has redeemed us through this entire event. And, and if the cross is the payment for our sins, if this is paid in full, then here's the good news. The resurrection is the receipt. It's the acceptance of the payment, right? Now then finally, Paul uses one last big word, which is very confusing. He is my propitiation. That's a word we don't use every day, right? Propitiation. The best way to understand this is he is the payment that turns away wrath. That for all of us, we are on a highway to hell most literally, and he is the payment that turns that away. And he does that through his perfect blood, his redemption. It could only happen from Emmanuel. It would have to be God with us in order for this to take place. So the, the Ark of the Covenant, this again, this Old Testament uh, picture that we get, this Ark, and there's a seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and there's these cool-looking angels that go out and, and cover the top of the seat. But that seat is actually called the mercy seat, or also known as propitiation. That once a year on Yom Kippur, for all the sins of the nation, they would take the blood of a lamb and they would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat for the sins of the nation. But the thing is, they had to do it 
year after year after year because blood of bulls and goats and lambs was never good enough. It would take Emmanuel in order for us to finally and truly have mercy. And the definition of mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I do not deserve, right? Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. And this is the thing that he has freely given to each of us. And it all starts right here by Yeshua being born. And he would save the people from their sins. So Lord Jesus, we're so thankful. So very grateful today for you being our Savior, for saving us from our sins, doing the thing through your righteous blood that we could not do for ourselves. Father, we praise you for that. Lord, it's a heavy thing to wear, to think about the sin, the weight, the condemnation, all this stuff that we drag around with us. And yet everything in your scripture points to believe and receive. Believe in you and receive complete freedom from it. We don't have to carry around these heavy coats of condemnation anymore. We can lay those things right there at the door. Praise you, Jesus, for that. Father, we just lift up your name on high. We pray that that for anybody that doesn't know you in that way, that doesn't know you as, as their redeemer, as their justifier, as their, their, their final propitiation, as the payment that turns away wrath, that they would come to know you today. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus, please move on the hearts of people. And Father, for those of us that already believe it, help us to receive it, Lord. Help us to, to live like that. I think about how often I live like I don't believe these words. Father God, we praise you for it. In Jesus' name.